am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs for Myriad Oncology. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today we have Dr. Michael Hall. He's a gastrointestinal oncologist and clinical cancer geneticist. He's the chair of the Department of Clinical Genetics and an associate professor in the Department of Clinical Genetics at Fox Chase Cancer Center. We welcome him to the podcast today. Hello, Dr. Hall. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So we've known each other for a while, but actually I'd like to know a little bit about your backstory. Uh, you know, I know little pieces here and there, but yeah. So please tell us, uh, the audience, your background and how you became a hereditary gastrointestinal cancer expert. Sure. So I grew up in the Midwest, but then did my medical school in New York City. I was not necessarily particularly interested in genetics at that point, but uh, I did come from a family that had lots of cancer in the family. Uh, several of my grandparents had died of cancer and aunts and uncles. So I was, I was definitely interested in genetics at that point. I did my residency training in Boston, Brigham and Women's, and that's really where I first became interested in oncology. And what I learned there during those years at, at the Brigham, where, which has a very strong oncology program associated with Dana-Farber, mm -hmm. was that finding the right career for yourself was really about identifying the, the patient population you wanted to treat. It was mm -hmm. about identifying the peers who you wanted to work with every day, and then finding the problems that you really wanted to address every day. And I, I really felt oncology was a good fit for me for that reason. So I, so I knew leaving my residency that, that oncology, which had great peers and patients who really needed you and you could really help, was, was a great fit. But I, I wasn't so sure about the genetics until I went to University of Chicago for my training mm -hmm. and in oncology. And my two mentors there were Fumi Olapade, who's a, yeah. a fairly well-known uh, BRCA researcher, and Hetty Kindler, who's a gastrointestinal oncologist. And really, it was just the influence of finding both of them to be researchers who I thought did great and fascinating work and knowing or realizing at that point that there were a lot of people in the field of genetics at that point who were interested in breast cancer, but actually not that many people who were interested in gastrointestinal cancers, especially on the oncology side. A lot of yeah. the genetics was driven by the gastroenterologists. So that kind of led me to say, oh, well, here's a place where I could form a niche. I, I actually wrote a master's thesis during that time from, a, I did a health services master's while I was at Chicago. And my project was on pancreatic cancer uh, genetics and looking at predictors of who might carry a BRCA mutation. So, so that's kind of where I got my start. It just kind of grew from there. Yeah, exciting. Well, you've, you've had a long career already, and now you're the department chair for clinical genetics. Can you tell us a little bit about your department and how it you know, looks and all the different facets of it? Yeah, you know, our department is broken up into sort of different components that are uh, either research related or they're clinically related or kind of a mix of both. So we have four primary attendings in the department, Elias Obeid, who is a breast oncologist, Kristen Whitaker, who's a breast oncologist, Mary Daly, who started our program back mm -hmm. in the early 90s, who's a breast oncologist, and me. Um, so we're sort of the four PIs. We have two uh, managers who help run the department, one who runs the clinical operations, one who's more of the manager of the whole department. Mm -hmm. And then we have a, a clinical research staff who help us run studies, 
We have a, a, an active large registry study of over 11, 12,000 participants. Wow. And we have individual smaller registries as well. We also have an, an intake crew who does all of our intake of calls of patients who are calling in. We realized years ago that the kind of information you needed to gather for a genetics visit was just very different than what you yeah. needed for a general oncology visit. So uh, as a department, we sort of broke off our intake staff to be within our department, which has actually you know, been great for us in the long run because it really is a very specialized type of yeah, information absolutely. interview. And then finally, we have the other members of the clinical staff. So we have four genetic counselors and a nurse counselor, and then two uh, nurse practitioners as well. So, you know, we're a diverse, busy group. I think all together, when you put us all in one room, there's maybe 25, 26 people. Yeah. And then there's usually a student or two wandering through a PhD student or summer student or, you know, so uh, so the, the population number vary a little bit here and there. But, but that's kind of the whole of us. And we're really a, a good integrated mix of research and clinical and marriage between the two. Yeah. And what does your average day look like? Pre-COVID virus, coronavirus. I was was thinking about this question and yeah, everything has changed, of course, in the last eight weeks, but every day is pretty different. Although week by week, the the days are similar. I reserve Mondays really for trying to do as much writing as I can, either grant or papers or other things I may be working on collaborative research. And my administrative assistant is is wonderful in knowing that Mondays are my sanctuary days to not no, that's bother great. me as much as as <laughs> yeah. much as possible because it is really so tough in academia to to get that that yeah. isolated time to get some work done. You need um, the blocks. Oh yeah, it's I mean as you know it is it is a big challenge because we have there's so many ways we can get interrupted these days whether it's email or being texted or paged or or not mm-hmm. our doors knocked on which I I love having my door knocked on but when I'm trying to get something done that can be challenging. Tuesdays are are mostly my meeting days where we we meet as a department and discuss cases. Uh, also I try to schedule most of my meetings on those days. Wednesdays total clinical day. Thursday mornings, again, I have a little bit of meeting time and some work time. Thursday afternoons is all purely genetics patients, and we kind of do often rapid Mm -hmm. fire disclosures, which used to be me going room to room, you know, to see disclosure after disclosure. Now it's all Zoom to Zoom, similar idea. And then Fridays, I do another little bit more than a half a day of clinical time in GI oncology, I should say, just like Wednesday, it's all GI oncology. And so then I have Friday afternoons, I have an important institution-based research council I sit on, a review, a study review group in the afternoon. So I usually need a little time if I've been asked to review a study to make sure I have my part together. And then I have a little time to kind of close out the week. And then I do, admittedly, Saturdays, 7.30, <laughs> to 12.30 is usually uh, another five hours just to have some quiet time to get some important reading or writing done, but I cut it off usually 12, 1230, and yeah. then my weekend begins. <laughs> yeah, you need some time, you need some time. No, you're, you're a dedicated man, so that's incredible. <laughs> and how has, uh, you, you mentioned room to room. I, I actually love that, room to room, now Zoom to Zoom. I actually never thought about how close those <laughs> terms were related. How has uh, coronavirus shifted the practice, you know, the clinical side for sure, probably also the research though? Yeah, it's, you know, in terms of the clinic, the counselors, I have to say, 
rapidly adapted. I think, you know, in terms of genetic counseling and our counselors were already familiar with phone disclosures. And so getting integrated with Zoom and figuring out how they would do their part and then pull the attendings in, that actually, I, I mean, over the course of three days, we were sort of up and going. So, so that part was easy. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I think the patients at the same time also got accustomed to getting a kit in the mail, having to generate saliva. One, one thing we have found is that it's, you know, we, we definitely have a, a higher failure rate on the, on the saliva or the home buckles or whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. So that has added a little bit of a, we have to do a lot of repeat testing, or I wouldn't say a lot, but maybe uh, 10, 15% we have to repeat, yeah. which is a little annoying, but, um, you know, mm -hmm. we get through it. I, I would say that part of the operation has been relatively easy, again, because so much of what we do in genetics is consultative. There are some times where, for instance, we saw an interesting patient the other day who had a fumarate hydratase mutation, so HLRCC, mm -hmm. yeah. and it would have been wonderful to be able to examine the patient to look for the cutaneous yeah. myomyomas and other things. And we, we weren't able to do that. She sort of showed us some on, you know, on the, yeah. on the video camera. <laughs> um, but, you know, so you, you do miss a little bit of it. But overall, that hasn't been too bad. I think what's been harder on the oncology side is to keep the hospital as safe as possible the hospital has had to restrict all visitation so only patients can come in mm -hmm. um, and, and accept if there's a, a very, very high need to have yeah. someone with them. Which is hard um, on patients, especially going through all this. Yeah. Very hard. And I feel sort of awful yeah. sometimes when I'm in the room with someone who you're having a serious discussion and, and you know, a spouse or a, a loved one is on a cell phone yeah. uh, or you're seeing them in the room and in the hospital. But, but anyway, I, I think everyone gets it. And thankfully that part makes it easier. The patients want to feel safe and they understand that if you have more people milling around, that's a higher risk of the virus being brought in. So I would say otherwise than on the research side, what has been challenging is I have a couple studies ongoing recruiting people to interviews where you sit down <laughs> with someone yeah. to do an interview. And so that initially threw a big monkey wrench into that. And one study we were able to kind of sort of shut down a little bit early. We didn't need that many more interviews. Mm -hmm. The other study we've had to put amendments in to, you know, to, to make it yeah. so that we can do things by video otherwise. But hasn't really been that big of a deal. People are just overall though, you know, I, th I think the population is definitely worried about coronavirus. And so they mm -hmm. want to, they want to minimize their risks. And so the care of patients has really had to learn to adapt to that. And it's been, some of my uh, friends have said, oh, this is great. Now you can do all your medicine sitting at your desk. It's got to be <laughs> a lot easier. And I said, it's actually not a lot easier because some of the things that we really rely on as providers, just mm -hmm. seeing a patient walk in the room and vital signs and stuff like that. Like they're called vital signs for a reason because, yeah. you know, when someone with the GI cancer has lost 10 pounds in a couple of weeks, you know that something's not right. Yeah. Um, so you lose some of that and, um, you know, but it's, it has been a learning process and I do think coronavirus will 100% change the face of medicine. Uh, yeah. We practice it moving forward. Yeah, that's, that was going to be what I would, was going to ask you. I mean, so going forward, specifically to cancer genetics, how do you think this is going to change everything? 
Well, I definitely think we will be doing much more telehealth. I think that's, that is 99% a great thing because there were a lot of restrictions on who could get cancer genetics counseling and testing in the past because particularly in Pennsylvania, for instance, which is a state that has, you know, a couple dense urban areas, but then a lot of rural area in between those urban areas. And we had patients who it was a burden to come in from a distance to see a counselor. And it, you know, it, it, it slowed down our ability to deliver care. And that, that certainly will get much better. I think another aspect of this is these sort of a lot of antiquated laws of counselors only being licensed, for instance, in one state, but not another, which is so outdated when you think about where Philadelphia, for instance, sits in a little pocket where Delaware and and New Jersey and even New York and Maryland, they're not that far away. And so to have only a license in one state, the state you actually have your office in doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And a lot of states have already started to adapt, you know, medical licenses to the coronavirus pandemic. So I think that we will hopefully see the same thing for counselors. Yeah, for genetic counselors. Yeah, exactly. I think the last thing is just as I was mentioning before, innovative ways to collect biospecimens is going to be huge, you know, whether it be saliva or buckle swabs. I had heard actually, I think maybe it was you guys at City of Hope were doing a uh, hair follicle study at some point, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, we were doing eyebrow plucks. Eyebrow um, plucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which the DNA eye. quality, yeah, it's not the not the best. It's good to spot check mutation if you need to see if something was, you know, holds up in the, you know, really you're looking at the actual hair follicle. At that point, you're looking at the bulb uh, itself, which is really of the epiderm. So it would help you understand if something was maybe in the skin, if you found it in the blood. But you, it was really hard to get good data uh, yeah. if you were running a, a large panel on it. The DNA quality was just a little too poor compared to doing something like a skin uh, fibroblast culture. So. Yeah. So I, I do think it'll just, this is going to change overall the models of how patients access Mm-hmm. Uh, genetic counseling and testing and uh, how they access their doctors and the exchange of information. But I, I actually see as much as I can't wait for this crisis to be over, I, I see that many of these things were sort of forced but positive innovations in, in medicine. Mm-hmm. They've allowed us to, to deliver care better and have a farther reach um, and not be not be tied into these old models where you have to come in and sit in a room with someone and bill based on that. I think when given lemons, you know, you have to try to make yeah. some lemonade. And I think, I think this will be the lemonade. <laughs> yeah. Virus. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, is there, you know, beyond this, I mean, is there any other major innovation that you feel our field is lacking right now? Anything else that, you know, irrespective of coronavirus that you would love to see happen in the next five or 10 years in the field of hereditary cancer genetics? To me, what now still currently plagues us the most is, you know, we've, we've gotten great at being able to interrogate the genome, although I, I still think we have a lot to learn, uh, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but at least DNA, interrogation, sequencing, detecting mutations, we've gotten really good at that yeah. really quick and we can do it fast, no question. I think you know the, the closest challenge right now is penetrance of mutations that we discover in individuals and trying to contextualize them within sort of the personal and family history mm-hmm 
because I think what we've learned more and more since we first understood how to sequence and, and detect BRCA1 and 2 mutations is that the mutation itself is probably important. The context is important. Ascertainment of that mutation is important. Mm -hmm. And until we better understand that, and, and as we continue to sequence you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, we're going to be detecting these mutations that, that we're, we're getting less and less good right. at telling people what their risks are. Uh, yeah. We knew back when it was just these super high risk families and yeah. you found a BRCA mutation, you could pretty confidently say you have a very high risk of breast cancer. Yeah. Now, that's like the easy stuff. The hard stuff are the Lynch syndrome patients who the risk could, you know, if you look at the, mm -hmm. the NCCN or some of the predictive tables, the boundaries of risk are 15% to, to 60%. Yeah. To a patient who's not particularly numeric and who doesn't right. want to spend their whole life worrying about risk, that, that's a huge goalpost to try to mm -hmm. make a ball between. And I so I think that and not only Lynch, I think in, you know, the, the other big problematic gene of which there are many, but CDH1 as well. We know yeah. there are some families where you have, um, you know, the, the classic uh, hereditary gastric cancer syndrome, and then you have other families where you don't seem to see that. Yeah. And taking someone's stomach out uh, based on a test result when there is no family history of stomach cancer is not an easy decision for the provider to discuss with the patient and then the patient to actually make an informed decision about. 100%. And again, I think we really need to think more about genetics on you know, the average person level and how that, that sort of average non-medical person is thinking about this. Because I think we still, in my view, think about genetics from from our standpoint, we, we think about it from the, the physician and the counselor standpoint, mm -hmm. where we have knowledge of, of, of how risk works and what risk means and how bad some of these cancers are. I think as we're, as testing is moving out into the population and, and even people who are very moderate to, to really know kind of elevated risk from their history are getting yeah. tested and we're finding things, we have to think about what we really should tell them to do and how they're gonna conceptualize the things that we tell them because you know, not everyone is the patient that, that used to present to hereditary mm -hmm. cancer clinics in the early 90s. In fact, the patients are totally different from yeah. that. Now. Yeah, um, yeah, especially with some cancers now just being recommended for anyone with that cancer to have testing like pancreatic cancer, ovarian, and some of the others. So yeah, other, it's, a, it's a different yeah, world. My other personal, I think, place I would really like to see more in the field is I, I think we still have a long way to go to understand how behavioral modifiers, whether those be exercising more or, mm -hmm. or eating better foods or, or stopping smoking, how those factors interact with your genetic risk. Because I think we, we, we all are going to have our genetic risk. We, we sort of inherited what we yeah. got from our family and, and you know, our exposures, how many flights we take or CT scans we get. We're going <laughs> yeah. to, you know, th this, is, this is just going to be part of life that we're going to build up these mutations. But what would be also very productive is to give people more ways that they feel like they can positively impact uh, mm -hmm. risk that may seem sort of inevitable. I, I think we're still pretty weak in that area. You know, the number of yeah. studies that, that tell us what kind of things we can do that could actually mitigate our, our inherited risks are, you can count the number of things yeah. and, and guidelines on like one. one oh, know, yeah, one. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that's all the guidelines put together. <laughs> yeah. What I find in my practice is, for instance, we have a pilot study going on right now 
where people uh, come in and they get an extra scope and they, they do a short intervention is the, the population of people who have these risks, they're very motivated. And if you yeah. give them something tangible that's not too crazy, something they can do, that I think that people would really do that because they do recognize that they don't want to develop cancer and they want to yeah. their risks. But we just haven't done a good job of that yet. Yeah, people want to feel empowered. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So yeah. I think that there's some room to to make advancements in that area. So I hope hopefully I can contribute to those and others can contribute as well, because I, I do think you're right. That's what they want is people want to yeah. feel empowered and not out of control. Yeah, well, you certainly are contributing. <laughs> no question. <laughs> no question there. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Sincerely. No, I know you're uh, extremely busy as a uh, department chair and uh, everything going on. I mean, just to hear all the different uh, elements of research and clinic and to the hour your day is scheduled <laughs> really, and even on Saturdays this probably costs you an extra hour on your Saturdays so no I, I, I thoroughly thank you I'm a perhaps obsessively disciplined person but I like to know that I've gotten something done or accomplished so that I can move on and and, yeah. and, and then have that time where I can not feel like I have to accomplish anything or accomplish those things that are pleasurable in a different way whether it yeah be, riding my bike or running or doing some work in the garden. So, but no, I really appreciate the invitation. It was, a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and yeah, be able to fill you in a little bit on genetics uh, in the age of coronavirus. Hopefully next time we talk, it'll be something of the past and, and yeah. not, uh, on the present. Hopefully, hopefully. Well, thank you. My pleasure.